0: Today's episode of The Eater Upsell is presented by MailChimp. MailChimp's team of over 500 staffers is growing quickly to support thousands of new customers every single day. MailChimp. Send better email. Sell more stuff. Hey, Greg.
1: Hey, Helen. We've made it to the end of 2016. Can you
0: believe it? Yeah, I don't know how to feel about the end of this year, but maybe that's a conversation for another time. You know, it
1: it it was a difficult year for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons, but... At least here in the Eater Upsell Studios, I think we had some really great conversations with people.
0: That's true. We did. It was in the beautiful golden bubble of the Eater Upsell Studio. It was a great freaking year.
1: Yeah, and, um, you know, as sometimes used to happen with, let's say, 80s sitcoms, when they would get to the end of a certain run, they might take a look back— in something that might be called a clip show. Have you ever seen a clip show before?
0: Heck yeah. I came of age in the golden age of sitcoms. I love this idea. Greg, let's do a clip show.
1: All right. Okay, so what Helen and I have done is we have compiled a few of our favorite moments from interviews from season two of The Eater Upsell. And we sent them along to AP Dan, and we're going to listen to them right now and kind of offer a little bit of our thoughts on that now that we're at the end of the year. I guess it's probably a good time to introduce AP Dan, who's the man behind the mixing board in the Eater Upsell New York City Studios.
0: Hey, Dan. Hey, Dan. How's Hi, it going?
2: Home. Hi, Greg. Hi, Upsell Kateers. Do you uh, not want
0: us to call you AP Dan? We don't have to do not um,
2: matter. I I like that. I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, so
1: I think we've mentioned it a number of times at this point. Yeah. So for continuity's sake, it might it's just important. be sticking. Yeah.
0: It's it's so exciting to have you as a guest on the Eater Upsell.
2: Yeah, this has actually been my goal since day one.
0: Your your whole point in coming to work here really was to <laughs> infiltrate infiltrate the the recording room and get on the show. But today, our AP Dan is. The central star around which all of this episode orbits because he holds the secret clips that Greg and I have selected as our favorite moments from the year. And he might have some surprises in store before the end of the show. All right, Dan.
1: So what, what do you got?
2: I'm going to start with Carla Hall talking about getting the fuckets. This is
0: one of my favorite oh, moments man. of the entire year. I love talking to Carla Hall. I love this whole idea of the fuck it.
1: You know what was so great about talking with her is that Carla Hall is a very polite, like, energetic person. And, you know, during her work on TV, I mean, that's kind of like how she has to be. And when we were talking to her, I could feel that she was talking about something that was really important and that, you know, she was maybe even hesitating a little bit in her mind, like, this is not the kind of thing I talk about on The View. The chew. And then she just went for it, and I'm so glad that she did. The chew. Sorry. Ooh. Man, I'm gonna get my food writer bag, badge revoked.
0: If you haven't heard this episode yet, beautiful listeners at home, you're gonna fall as in love with Carla Hall as I did.
3: Daphne and I were told that. Oh my god, I, I'm probably gonna get fired for this, one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you know, uh, we'll bleep out the next ten you seconds or whatever. You said. Uh,
3: no, but it it was it, it was this whole thing of you know we weren't growing as quickly as the guys, oh. and and I was like, wow, but you know, it's like you set us up for really great backup singers. This was probably a year and a half ago. And looking back now, it was my lesson. I had to get to the point where I was frustrated enough to move into my authenticity. And when I look back at those segments, I I wasn't as good as I could be, but they weren't, I didn't feel like they were helping me get there. So once I got what I call the, the screw it's, I'm using another word. We can Uh, say it on here. Oh, okay. You you have to get the fuck it sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Right? And so in that meeting, I said everything that I wanted to say because I knew that I didn't want to go home, wish I had said something else. And I said, if I get fired, that's okay, but I'm going to go out being me and telling you exactly how I feel. And they looked at me and they were like, okay,
0: all right, here she is. Thank you for showing up. And it was crazy. I think One of the things I find super inspiring about that particular moment that we just listened to is that that's like really good career advice. Like I applied that to my own life, you know, when and not just career advice, it's good life advice. Like it's good to come down with a case of the fuckets and just Mm -hmm. stop being diplomatic and tell people exactly how you feel, because you know, if you're not happy, you don't have anything to lose. Just walk into that, that point office. point of being
1: authentic. Say yeah. like,
0: here's what's going on. Here's what I'm worth. You need to value me. Like, fuck it. Fuck it, Carla Hall. Fuck it.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so next we have uh, Greg's clip of Andrew Zimmern talking a little bit of New York restaurant history.
0: If this is the clip, I think it is. This is the most epic mic drop moment in the history of mic drop moments. It's a it's a fragment of the mic drop moment.
4: Here, let's uh let's take a listen. To me the big thing that changed in New York in the 70s was, you know, Kissinger goes to China. We have this détente that allows Chinese chefs, real Chinese chefs, regional Chinese chefs to come to New York. And so you have all these incredible high-end Chinese restaurants opening up because of this flood of talent coming in and Uncle Tai's Hunan Yuan opens up on 3rd Avenue. And you start to see a New York City that becomes obsessed with ethnic food of all types. And instead of it just being about French food, Italian food starts to have a renaissance. We have a trade uh, negotiation with—I mean, I was at the party as a young person invited by people's parents at the Italian embassy when they said, here's a wheel of real Parmesan. Here is something called balsamic vinegar. And the reason these these products flooded into our marketplace was because— they didn't have to pay the kind of taxes that other countries did. We had we developed a trade deal with Italy. So all of a sudden, the French food, Italian food, things start to pick up and people start referring to the outer boroughs. Oh, my God, there's Italian food in Manhattan now that's brilliant. There's Chinese food. There's Thai food. There's Mexican food. There's Cuban food at more than just Victor's. And then into the 80s, you start to see the California notion come in that we're going to cook. What about doing something with American food and all these incredible ingredients that we have here? And that's when things got really exciting. And I and that's when I started cooking in the in the city.
1: Is there anybody that's better at doing exactly what he just did than Andrew Zimmern?
0: He did all that without notes too. I mean the man no, is a with, walking no, no. history
1: book. The question we asked is what was uh what was it like to cook in the 80s in New York City? And that and he said, can I uh, can I approach that from a slightly different angle? I
0: know. And he's like, well, first we need to really talk about the post Civil War state of America. I mean, literally, he started post Civil War and then, like, that blippity bloppity like, fast-forward noise. Suddenly, we're at like the Vietnam War, we're at Nixon resigning, like, and then he barely even made it into the 80s. Like, it was incredible. And he just pulled it off the top of his head. Yeah.
1: It kind of reminded me of like you used to hear that like um, old school, politi- like old school, like very old politicians, like Abraham Lincoln and people like that. They were great. Orators. Teddy Roosevelt. They were great orators. Yeah.
0: yeah. He's a real life Aaron Sorkin character.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: That was a great man. Love Andrew that. Zimmern for president. OK. Dan. Yeah. Ooh,
1: love it.
2: Dan. What else, what
0: else What do we have going on?
2: So we have uh, Helen's clip. Um. This is Alex Stupak talking about how he was affected by the criticism of Sam Sifton and Pete Wells. Who are the
0: New York Times critics who reviewed his various restaurants?
1: When you read that Pete Wells review where he's talking about the plates or the music or whatever, what was your kind of initial reaction? Were you like, you're wrong, or, and
5: then realizing that changes you had to make or I was uh I was like, you know what? Shit. Uh, honestly I was like, he's right. Like we, we started like we just started doing it. We just started putting the plateware out there and it's like this doesn't fit on the table and we're we're not giving people a minute to enjoy it. And if we're telling people to share it, we're not constructing it in a way where I could scrape it onto my plate and have some left over for the other person. It's just simple mechanics. I mean that that's that's no different than like, by the way, here's a pizza, but I'm not gonna cut it. Right. There you go, guys. Have fun. Well what the shit is that? It could be the best pizza <laughs> in the world, but like how like it starts creating tension and anxiety amongst the diners. So it was actually, uh, a, like, and sometimes you need to read it in a review. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes, like, I wasn't I wasn't a mature enough person to, to think about that in advance. Um, I needed to hear Sam Sifton say that Taqueria is the loudest fucking restaurant on earth, and they need soundproofing in a really friggin' bad way. And we had it next month. I mean, we, we had it. I was like, shit, you're right. Like, this place is loud as fuck.
1: Just hearing that again, it made me think about, like, How just kind of fair and level-headed he seems to be about, you know, what he's done and getting feedback and understanding, you know, that it's not just him being this creative person, but he's also somebody who is, you know, giving something for paying customers and, you know, he's not above criticism. So, yeah, I just just really love that conversation, really respecting that guy.
0: You know, it's hard for a lot of chefs to hear negative feedback. I mean, you hear every so often about... These guys and, you know, we won't name any names, but I'm sure everybody listening knows exactly who we're talking about, who take out these Just full read page... it for like
1: two days yeah. and you'll find it. Yeah. But
0: you know, these these folks who take out a full page ad and whatever paper record is in their city saying, like, your critic is an idiot and he knows absolutely nothing. And it's like, well, man, like the point of the critic is not to be a trained chef who is speaking the chef's language. The point of the critic is to be a diner.
1: All right. Uh, Lieutenant Dan, what's next on That's the docket? mean. What he's a nice guy is he? I thought Wasn't he, was he a, a very beloved character, character in Forrest
0: Gump? I found him to be very. Oh t- no,
1: he's the. Was that Gary Sinise? It
0: was. Sin, Sin, is that he Sinise? I we I, we're just going down paths. I don't know. But all right, okay, let's move on. Dan,
2: uh, this is Eric Repair talking about how he dealt with the recession.
1: Well, that was such a weird story. I think, <laughs> like, I, I kind of remember that when it was actually happening, but. I mean, it sounds like they really did take a risk
6: there and it paid off. So 2008 is the crash in October, I think. Yeah. So for for fine dining restaurants, I mean, we are packed anyway until the end of the year. The, the private rooms are packed. Nobody's going to cancel the Christmas party. And But 2009, in January, the city is shut down. All the restaurants are empty, especially um, expensive restaurants. And we decided to to do many things. First of all we decided to help the community. And therefore, for every client that was coming to Le Bernardin, we were giving $1 to City Harvest with a guarantee $100,000 donation to them, saying we're going to have at least this year 100,000 clients, which we did. We exceeded that expectation. Um, We wanted to be visible. So therefore, we overnight um, uh, doubled the budgets of public relations. And we didn't cut corners. We didn't let any employee leave Le Bernardin, except the ones who wanted to leave. Uh, but nobody was laid out. And I, at that time, I remember saying, people in the recession, for the dollar they spend, they want the maximum. And therefore, we are going to give more than ever. And that, I think, made Le Bernardin a leader um, in uh, not only fine dining, but in the restaurant industry, during that tough time in New York, and and I remember having a discussion with a, a Greek client of us who was spending a lot of money in wine each time he would come to Le Bernardin. And one day he asked me if we were okay because he said the dining room is full. I said yes, we are okay. I mean, and I said you. He said oh, it's a disaster. It's a, and I said, can I ask you a question? Why, if it's a disaster, why do you spend so much money on wine? And he said what do you have for breakfast? And I said, I have Greek yogurt and coffee. He said, did you change the brand of the yogurt since it's a recession? I said, no. He said, well, so I'm not changing my wine.
0: It says a lot, I think, about how luxury works in the world. Like, And also that whole idea of you need to spend money to make money, you know, when everything yeah, starts yeah. going down, if mm-hmm. you just like digging your heels and you say, no, we're going to be the ones who stick with... High cost, high value, there will hopefully, if the world has not sufficiently gone to shit, still be enough people with disposable income left to take advantage of your fancy dining. Totally. Totally.
2: This is uh, Helen's submitted clip of Mark Summers talking about how he was almost a career smoked salmon salesman.
1: His story is so unusual in how he got to where he is, and it really seems like just a good example of somebody who's had a good eye for seeing opportunities and being prepared for, you know, pre- prepared for those tests. To, to get those opportunities, you know?
0: He's just so classically old Hollywood. I think there's that sort of like fast talking, call my agent, like hustly kind of thing that he's got going on. And of course, of course he had a career detour to become the Salmon King of North America because that's what happens when you're Mark Summers, one of the weirdest, most fascinating dudes in the world.
2: Mark Summers is really special to me because like I used to be anxious in high school and Unwrapped was the thing that would like put me to
7: bed every night.
0: That was his first Food Network show, right? Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful.
7: And here's this little tidbit that I don't talk about much. Um, I had a friend who I went to college with, Lawrence Milner, who um, was from Cape Town, South Africa, and had a smoked salmon business. And he was the largest distributor of smoked salmon to the entire continent of Australia, as well as to Harrods of London. And he would come over to the States and bring his smoked salmon, and it was phenomenal. So, I was unemployed one summer, and I said, send me some salmon, let me go see if I can sell it. So, I go to a deli in a place called Larchmont, and I open up this three-ounce pack of smoked salmon from Cape Town, and they buy it on the spot. So, I called Lawrence, woke him up at, like, 3 in the morning, and I said, you won't believe it, but the first place I took it, I sold it. Well, the next thing I know, we're doing 80,000 pounds a month of smoked salmon to then uh, the price club before it became Costco. Then we got into Trader Joe's, so I became the king of smoked salmon. And I got a phone call one day from a friend of mine, uh, Dave Garrison, uh, who was a ventriloquist, who had decided he was going to move behind the camera. This was uh, in uh, June of 86. And he said, I got a call from some network I've never heard of called Nickelodeon. They're uh, casting for a game show. Why don't you go instead of me? And I did. They told me they had looked at a thousand different hosts in uh, New York, didn't like anybody. And then um, I was the first to audition here. I had three callbacks, and I ended up getting the job, and it, was, it came down to me and another guy, and I ended up getting the, the job, and I said, what made me stand out of the 2,000 people? And they said, well, when it came down to you and the last guy, you were pretty much equal. But at the end of his audition, he looked at the camera and said, you guys want me to do something else? And I looked at the camera and said, we'll be back with more Double Dare after this. I threw the commercial. They thought that was more professional. That's how I ended up getting the job that changed my life.
0: And you could have just been the smoked salmon baron of North America. You know,
7: honest to God, I could have been doing 100,000 pounds of smoked salmon. I know my smoked salmon, but, uh, you know, uh, what can I tell you? It was very interesting walking
1: through the Vox Media studios with Mark Summers because, I mean, this must just be a little glimpse into what it's like to be that guy. But, you know... As he walks down, everyone wants to take a photo with him and tell them about their special Double Dare memory. I mean, it's like he is it was just ingrained in a lot of people's childhoods.
0: We've had a lot of big names coming through the studio here that, like, nobody, nobody got stopped for more selfies than Mark Summers. He lives in our hearts.
1: All right, uh, Daniel the Manual,
0: what is—what's <laughs> uh, what's next? Is that it? Are we done?
2: Um, no, now I have my three.
0: You have your own favorites.
2: Um, well, of course, these were, I loved all of yours. So these were after filtering through yours. Sure,
0: sure, sure. Uh,
2: the first is when, um, Helen realized that Kenji probably cooked for her at Fire and Ice in Boston.
1: That was like, um, you know... What what did Oprah call used to call it? An aha moment? Well, I guess it's not an aha moment. That's when you realize like what you should be doing in your life. But
0: maybe what I should be doing with my life is like flirting with Kenji as a teenager at a terrible restaurant <laughs> in Harvard Square.
1: The summer after my sophomore year, I was I wanted to take the summer off from doing academic work. So I went around looking for a job as a waiter in Boston. Um and one of the restaurants I walked into, this was, if you're familiar with Boston, uh, circa you know 1999 or whatever, 1998, uh, this was Fire and Ice in Harvard, in Harvard Square, Square, which is like an all you can eat Mongolian buffet type thing.
0: That was my favorite restaurant when I was like <laughs> 19 years old.
1: Yeah. It was a lot of 19 year olds favorite restaurants. Um,
0: that was the best restaurant. Like it was, inc- I, s- I spent the summer of 99 in Boston, in Cambridge, and, and I went it? to Fire Nights All the time. Then I
1: must have cooked for you. So I was, my first restaurant job was night of the round grill. Um, So I was the guy in the middle who like would, whatever, flip asparagus in the air and catch it on a plate behind me and and stir fry your stuff.
0: I am, I'm blushing furiously right now. I mean, that that was a hilarious and amazing moment. Kenji and I, I mean, we've known each other for years and it never came up that it turned out we were literally in the same place at the same time when we were in very different stages in our lives than we're at right now can't get over it what could have been
2: okay so this one i found really fascinating uh curtis stone this is when he kind of talks a little bit about how he ended up being a tv chef and i think this one's really cool because it's like he didn't go out seeking to be famous he just kind of stumbled on one thing after
8: another and now i'm absolutely obsessed with him somebody wrote a book called london's finest chefs and i was one of the chefs in that book and and as a part of that book, they asked us to do some morning segments to promote it. We, there was, you know, these great chefs, John Burton Race and, you know, guys that I'd really admired, you know, in my career over there and then, and me. And uh, so we had to do a book signing, which, you know, was a, a guy that was three months ago a sous chef somewhere. It was a pretty bizarre thought. But, um, I did a morning segment and then they asked me to come back and do another one. And then from that, somebody asked me if I'd do the first ever show I did was called dinner in a box. And, uh, it was about somebody trying to do a dinner party at home, um, and having trouble with it. So then I would show them how to create those dishes and pack the ingredients up in a box and they'd then send them home with the cameras and see whether they could pull it off or not. And I did that for like this little cable channel in the UK and, you know, one thing just led to another and it sort of just kept happening.
1: One thing I love about Curtis Stone is that he doesn't fit into any one category that makes that, you know, there's no other chef that's like Curtis Stone, you know, somebody who is that much of a TV star, but then also like... This really thoughtful, fine dining guy in L.A. where that is not necessarily as popular as it is in other big cities. He's an interesting guy.
0: He walks the walk, you know. He doesn't just talk the talk.
1: Yeah,
2: that. And I was totally uh, victim to thinking that Curtis Stone was a useless TV chef. And then uh, within the span of an hour, I... Decided he was uh, extremely talented. So thank you, Upsell.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, like, the thing with Curtis Stone is that he's insanely handsome, right? Yeah. He's super handsome. He has a vortex of charisma. Right. And you're just like, oh, man, someone as charismatic and good looking as you has to be useless. Well, and then it turns out he's very talented.
2: Yeah. And, and, and uh, I don't know how I feel about, like, Top Chef Masters as a thing. And seeing him for the first time on Top Chef Masters, I just— it was like, oh, this this fucking guy like, you
0: know, right. This handsome Australian right. chef. Yeah. But then like he's the real deal. He's the you real know deal. what? I think he's going to be dealing with that his
1: entire yeah. life, though. It's like, OK, I, though. I feel like that is his that is his thing. If, yeah. if
0: his burden is that people prejudge him because he's too <laughs> handsome, like, all right, fine. Yeah, That's a, I would like that yeah.
2: burden. Right. Also, like right. I was looking at <laughs> pictures of him online. He's of course He's definitely were. gotten like more handsome, <laughs> which is like more, un- I guess, unfortunate now for his, for what we're talking about. Like if you look at, I was looking at for him in London during the time of the cookbook. And, you know, he's like, he's definitely not as, he's, he's, his weather, weathered, being weathered just looks very good on weathered. him. I, yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, you know, as, as a heterosexual woman, I can confirm that men tend to get more handsome as they get older.
2: Yeah. AP Dan,
0: AP Dan, Dan looking top. at photos <laughs> of Curtis Stone on the internet and weighing in on his handsomeness.
2: Oh, I was getting excited for my weathering.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and you're, more It's gonna from be Greg. great. You're gonna, you're, you're like four years old. You're gonna start graying at the temples. Um, and like, great. it's gonna be awesome. Fun fact about that episode: Usually, we record the Eater all in a, in a fairly professional environment, and we have a studio that we sit in with our guests, and then. There's a whole other space where the soundboard is and stuff like that. And for weird Vox Media Studios space reasons, we recorded that episode with me and Greg and Curtis sitting at a table, like we always do. And then a whole bunch of people sitting in the room with us, just sort of silently watching, <laughs> including was, me, including Dan. It was our first secret version of Theater Upsell Live, which I guess it was bum, a bum, success. Bum. Maybe we should do that more.
1: The Eater Upsell Live. Totally. That has a great ring to it.
0: Guys, listeners at home, if if you would be interested in the Eater Upsell Live on or off ice, um, let us know. Drop us a line at upsellateater.com And I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we're there. Maybe we can make that one of our 2017 resolutions to, to bring oh, one man. of these shows live into the real world, out of your headphones okay. and into your hearts.
1: If we're going to do Eater Upsell Live on ice— if we were to have a hologram of somebody appear, like they did at Coachella, who would it be? Tupac, obviously. Oh yeah, that's who appears yes. in hologram form. That's Stupac. just like
0: it's what? Tupac and Tupac. Fuck. <laughs> Stup- <laughs> that's okay. so good. Okay, so Dan, it- you've got one more fave, right? Uh,
2: yep. Here is uh Anthony Bourdain um talking a little bit
9: of politics. Ooh. I just think it's a matter of I'm free to notice the elephant in the room. I don't know if I'm eating a louse and a guy I'm eating with is missing an arm and a leg, it's worth mentioning, or at least asking, hey, fella, what happened? And if he tells you, well, as a little kid, I was, uh, you know, I wasn't born during the Vietnam War, but, you know, as a little kid, I was wandering around and doing my farming with my dad, and I stepped on, you know, one of the, you know, three million tons of munitions left in our country and unexploded uh, an ordnance. Look that's not necessarily a political statement. It's a reality. And if you travel long enough to enough places and you have enough conversations with people, you will notice those kinds of things. I'm not an activist. Uh, I don't have an agenda. Uh, you know, there are some exceptions. I'm obviously—I have a bug up my ass about uh, Mexican immigration because I take that personally, and that is that is an issue for me. Uh, you know, I'm very aware of and supportive of uh, people who've been living and working in this country uh, as solid uh, contributors to our economy—as essential, fundamental c- contributors to our economy and our workforce, and who I've come to know many of personally. OK, that's something that's personal. But generally, I go into a country, and I don't really have enough—I don't have a fully formed opinion or agenda, but I tend to notice things. And I've been given the freedom to notice and to wander away from the meal. I don't have to shove food in my face, you know— People will say, you know, stick to food, man. Like my food is like my my because I'm not what a professional pundit. Uh, my opinion is worthless. Look, I've been traveling the world for 16 years now. I've seen a lot of shit.
0: I mean, mic drop. Wow. Right?
1: That's mic drop, man. You know what I was just thinking listening to that? I mean, well, it's very powerful. And I not to undercut everything he was saying, but it's like. Uh, in Foodie Heaven, uh, Anthony Bourdain is the voice of God. That's what his voice sounds like. <laughs> like, <laughs> thou shalt not.
0: He's the voice in your head. Serve and... a shareable small plate. Yes. <laughs> um, what an amazing guy, though. Uh, you know, like it was a real it was a real pleasure to get to talk to him. And you know, when we had that conversation, it was it was back in October, and you know the the world was not quite. As much as it is right now, and as much as much, and I think you know he's always been a really outspoken guy, and he's always been really unafraid to ruffle feathers. And I think now is probably a very exciting time to listen to what Anthony Bourdain has to say.
1: Yeah, I would. Uh, I would only assume that he's going to continue doing that, and maybe in greater capacity in the in the coming year. And um yeah just listening back on all that stuff uh what a year it was Greg I'm so what a year it was I'm so glad we got to talk to all these people
0: and I'm so glad that all of you guys listening at home or at work or on the subway were with us for all of this
1: Yeah and and thanks to everyone who wrote in to upsell at eater.com with notes and suggestions and feedback and ideas for guests. We're going to be gearing up for a season three in the new year. So if you have any other thoughts on people you'd love to hear us talk to, just shoot us a line at upsell at eater.com.
0: You can also always tweet at me or at Greg. I'm at hells, H-E-L-S, and Greg is at Greg Morabito.
1: Greg Morabito.
0: And we'd love to hear from you. We want to know what you want from us, and hopefully we can make that happen. Whether it's guests or it's formats or it's structures or you would like to point out that I say like a lot, which I'm aware of and I'm working on, but it's still a thing. Let us know. We'd love to I, hear from you.
1: I like that, though. I like you that.
0: You like my likes.
1: and It's relatable. Yes. Yeah. I, if there was a like button on your likes, I would hit like.
0: Thank you, Greg. Um, I feel the same way about yeah. you. And Dan, thanks for joining us for this episode yeah, of The Dan, Upsell. Dan, thanks for... He's <laughs> Thank nodding. You you, say oh, words right, into the yeah. microphone. You're a professional radio person. You know how this works. <laughs> I'm
2: used to the glass. Thank you. Yes.
0: So what is like,
1: what is season three, like, what's the equivalent? I was going to say, it's not going to be like The Godfather Part 3 because everyone hated that one. And it's not gonna be like the hangover part three, because that one didn't even, they weren't Ooh. even hungover during it. Lord of the Rings part three. Oh, yes, exactly. No, because okay. that was
0: the, no, no, that's, it, that's yeah. the last one. Right, right. And we're gonna do this forever. <laughs> Yeah. so stick around beautiful people at home hit subscribe on your phones if you have not already and you'll be automatically alerted when season 3 arrives Um, and in the weeks between now and then we have some very special treats for you every single Monday morning so don't unsubscribe because you're going to be getting cool stuff from us here at the Eater Upsell basically from now through the end of eternity or the heat death of the universe whichever comes first we love you have a wonderful end of December and a beautiful new year and we'll see you soon.
2: Happy new year Fast and the Furious, Greg.
0: Yes, yeah, that's it. and they did that's like it. nine of those, right? right. Oh, so and then yeah, they're still yes. going. Cool, the next... perfect. Yes, we're the Fast and the Furious the podcast. <laughs> Woo! We made it through that episode, thanks to lots of people who will hit up in the credits, but especially thanks to Mailchimp, the presenter of this episode. Mailchimp, send better email, sell more stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Greg Morabito. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener, you. Thank you for being exactly who you are.